Okay, so we're in the starting the Gospel of John this semester, and really, it's not. A, we're not going to be able to do a very thorough coverage of John. But what we're going to try to do is look primarily at uh, uh, the seven "I am" statements of Jesus that he makes, and and seven signs that he performs. I know that uh, this is kind of coincidental, but I know Howard's doing the seven signs. We're going to do ours in reverse order. We already set this up, so we're doing the "I am" statements and. And the second part of the semester, really kind of the third, the third part of the semester, we'll look at uh, the signs that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John. So, you know, when I, the Gospel of John's really been important in my life because when I first came to know Jesus, somebody told me to read the Gospel of John, so I did that. And God really spoke some really vital, important things, still anchor points for me that I think of frequently, you know, when I'm up against... Uh, Difficulties, or wondering if you know, am I doing any good, or making any progress? That I'll remember that God spoke to me in the really the late winter of 1973 when I first encountered life in Christ, and so it's been very important for that reason. But also, it's just kind of my favorite gospel. It's kind of it's kind of metaphysical compared to the synoptics, isn't it? It's really more like a Colossians or Hebrews. It's kind of out there, and and what's really interesting is that the Christmas story in John. One of the things really interesting is that it starts all the way back at the beginning. In fact, it's a repeat of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we have this introduction of Jesus in this prologue, and we'll read that in a minute. And uh, to the Greeks, to the philosophers, the Word was the thing behind everything. It was the power that made all things hold together and move things. And so when John speaks... He says, I'll tell you what that word is. It's the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one that's created all things and upholds all things. He is that word. And so that's kind of interesting that, that John would kind of bring those two things together, Hebrew history and, and Greek philosophy, and roll them all up in Christ Jesus because he's the answer and the, the purpose of all of history. So when, when we read the prologue, uh, why don't we just do that right now? This first 18 verses is what's typically considered the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own, re- own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And again in his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So really, Jesus is the revelation of God's grace, and I probably mentioned this numerous times over the last few years, but uh, when Paul meets with the Ephesian elders the last time in Acts chapter 20, he's on his way back to Jerusalem, and so they come down to the, to the coast to meet him, and he commends them to the word of God's grace, because he said that'll bring you in all the inheritance and build you up in the faith. 
And uh, it's interesting that he uses a definite uh, article, the word of grace. So Jesus is that word of grace. He is grace personified. And, and so when we look at, at uh, the Gospel of John, what we're seeing is God's grace revealed, revealed in Christ Jesus. And he does it in several different ways. And he does it really for this overarching purpose. John's the only one that's just really succinct and specific in why he writes his Gospel. Why did he write his Gospel? That we might believe, huh? So he, he shares all these events, all the things he relates about Jesus. And he doesn't relate a lot of the things that the other gospel writers relate. But the things that he does relate, he said, these signs Jesus did that we might believe. And that believing we might have eternal life. And so the grace of God revealed us in Jesus that we might believe and have the life of God. So all of this grace that comes our way is for this purpose, not just to, to fill us up and to make us fruitful, you know, all that will happen, but that we might believe and really have the life of God in us. So this is a fantastic thing. And that some form of the word believe is used 99 times in this gospel. So we could probably say, well, that must be the theme, huh? And it is the theme. It's the theme of faith in Christ Jesus that brings us into relationship with God and, and brings into our life and all the benefits and all the fruitfulness and the power of God to be pleasing to him in a life that's lived out in that faith. So when I read through the Gospel of John, which I've done many, many times, uh, it, it just began to dawn on me there were some things there that, that kind of stuck out to me. So I want to kind of approach the Gospel of John this morning as we introduce it uh, through these four streams of thought. And the first two we're not going to spend a whole lot of time with today, but they're the ones that we're going to emphasize the rest of the semester. One is that Jesus equates himself with God, and he says, I am, and then he modifies it typically. But there are several times, and I'll list them there in your outline, there are several times where he, there's no modifier. He simply says, I am. Well, what's that remind you of? Yeah. We have the God of the covenant of Moses, huh? Yahweh. I am that I am. And so Jesus is declaring this, and it gets him into a lot of trouble, doesn't it? Because he's saying, I'm God. Well, the Jews, what are they? They're, they're monotheists, aren't they? They are monotheists. This is what... This is what uh, uh, Muhammad, he was really jealous of the Jews because they had one God. He grew up in an environment where there were multiple gods. There were all these gods, you know, around. Everybody's worshiping all these different gods. That really, somehow that perturbed him. At least that's what he reports in the Quran, you know, in the history. That this really perturbed him, and he was jealous of the Jews because they had one God. And so the Jews had this one, this concept of God is one. The Lord our God is one, you know, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus comes along and you have all this tradition, 2,000 years of covenantal tradition from Abraham forward of Yahweh, of El Shaddai, of the Almighty God. And now Jesus steps onto the scene. He says, I am God. And, you know, that's not going to compute with them, is it? And even though he gives many signs and testifies and gives great teaching and shows how this is true, they refuse that. He comes to his own people and his own people refuse him. And, of course, everybody's his own people, aren't they? There's not any because he created all people and all nations and planted them where he wanted them and all the people that, that are living or have lived. You know, they, God, they're created in the power of Jesus' name. But they refuse that. And so when Jesus says he is God, when he says I am, they say that's blasphemy. And so that's one of the excuses they use. It really wasn't an excuse for them. That's one of the excuses they use to present him to Pilate for crucifixion. But, you know, when, when they came, when Judas betrayed Jesus and they brought the, the officers into the garden, you remember what Jesus says? They said, uh, we're looking for this guy. And, and Jesus says, if you have a 
modern English Bible, it says, I am he. But Jesus didn't say he, he just said, I am. And he says this several, on several occasions. He just says, I am. And then he says, with modification, I am the resurrection of life. I am the light of the world. I am the, the, the gate, you know, the door. I am the good shepherd. He says several other things. He says, I am. And he modifies that similar to what God does, the Father does in the Old Testament when he says, I am Jehovah Jireh. You know, I'm Yahweh Yireh. I'm the God who is the provider. Or I'm the God that's present. Yahweh Shammah. I am the God that's with you. But oftentimes, Jesus used no modifier. And oftentimes, the prophets in the Old Testament we just say the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, wherever you see those caps, or G, cap, capital G, capital O, capital D, wherever you see God or Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. There's a lot of terms. There's like 37 names for God in the Old Testament. But when you see them all caps, that's referring to Yahweh, the God of covenant with, with Abraham and Israel. And so when we look at the Gospel of John, we're going to see that's a major motif is Jesus declaring he is equal with God. He and the Father are one. The other thing that we see is these seven signs, which the first one you'll hear today. If you weren't at 830, you'll hear it at 11. If you were there at 830, you heard uh, Howard preaching on the turning water into wine, and Jesus does this sign. And so he does these signs that testify to him. And he even says, if you won't believe me for my words, believe me for my signs. Believe me for the testimony of Moses and, and uh, John. You know, believe, but believe. He says, he says in fact, he even says, Unless you see signs, you won't believe, right? And, and we can all attest to that. We, we want to see signs, and we've seen signs, haven't we? How many of y'all have seen a sign in your life, you know? It says, eat at Joe's. No, no. <laughs> just, I mean, so I, I was going to, to Kairos meeting in Pampa yesterday, and, and so I'm going to this team meeting, and I've been singing that in Christ alone, you know, and so I was singing that, and driving down the road instead of texting I was holding this up and I was singing this you know and, and there's the, one of the verses uh, says that no, no power on earth can pluck me from his hand so I'm driving I, here's a billboard some electrical company has got John chapter 10 no one can pluck them from their hand I said a sign you know, <laughs> you know? We've, we've had signs haven't we we've had signs we've experienced God intervening in our lives in that way but Jesus said listen I'm going to do more signs I so want people to believe that I will do more signs. So I was thinking this week. Some people say that the gifts and the power and the dominion of God, basically they say they diminished after we got the New Testament, right? That all that miraculous stuff disappeared. And now we've got the book. Aren't you glad doctors don't operate that way? I don't need any practice. I got the book. Okay, we're going to take out his kidneys. Give me that book over here. I've never, you know, I got a book. This is my first operation, never done a kidney deal, you know. Aren't you glad doctors don't operate that way? God doesn't operate that way because the gospel's still moving into the world, isn't it? And people have not changed. People are the same. And the power of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's not withdrawn anything. He's poured out on all flesh and the Spirit. Everything is still available to those who believe. And Jesus is... He's not beyond saying raising the dead, you know, in order to say, see, I am the resurrection and life, or healing someone that's broken in body, or doing any of those kind of things. He's not beyond, well, I'm, I'm quit, I quit that. No, he doesn't quit that. He says, I am. I am. So it's good to know that. So those are two of the major themes of John. Uh, the one I, uh, there's a couple of that I want to emphasize today for you that kind of undergird a lot of it. One is Jesus is totally submitted to the initiative of his father there's nobody meek like jesus 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And Jesus is going to inherit the earth, isn't he? You know, it says in Psalm 2, the Father says to the Son, the Lord says to my Lord, ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Don't you know that Jesus has prayed for and is praying for the nations? He is. He has. He's interceded for the nations. And the Father has told him, if you'll ask me, I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. So Jesus is most meek, and he's going to inherit the earth. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And so everywhere as you go through the Gospel of John, I listed a bunch of the scriptures. You can see some of these in particular. But he says, I never do anything I don't see my Father doing. I don't speak what I've not heard from my Father. So Jesus' life was absolutely, totally submitted to glorify the Father completely which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Jesus did that. Never took a step, never went to a place, never spoke a word, never gave a teaching, never healed a person that he did not see or hear from his Father prior to that. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? To have that kind of fullness and direction in the Holy Spirit to be absolutely, completely given over to the Father. And, you know, this is a mysterious thing that you have the son in the garden or any place else praying and speaking to the father. He says, Lazarus to him, he says, I know that you always hear me, Dad. But in order that they might believe that you hear me, I'm speaking this prayer out loud. And then he commands Lazarus to come forth. But where Jesus is praying, he is bringing himself in submission to his father. And he's listening back. He's got this real perfect, absolutely perfect dialogue with the father. When he prays, he's asking for wisdom. He's asking for direction with a complete desire to yield to that and then hearing from his Father, and he goes out and does the Father's will. So that's a real, that's a high model, isn't it? That's a high standard. You and I will never attain to that. We'll never attain to that. But Jesus attained to that for us. His perfect meekness, his perfect submission to the Father has been accounted to us who do what John says. We believe. We believe. What a gift, huh? What a gift to believe and then to be full in Christ Jesus. Because all that's accounted to us, all that he's done. So that's a, that's a major theme through the gospel. You'll see Jesus is always referring to the one who sent me, you know, and I came from him. And uh, as he prays, he prays according to the Father's will and submits his will to the Father's. So that's a, a major one. Uh, then the fourth one that I want to spend most of the time on this morning is this idea of, of pneumatology. So you pump up tires. The study of pumping tires. Pneumat- What's that? And eyeballs. That's right, eyeballs. So, so pneumatology is the theology that's devoted to understanding the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a book been written. I think it was a, I think it was a Philip Yancey book, maybe. Somebody can correct me. Uh, the God I Never Knew. Is that Philip Yancey's title? Does anybody know that title? You know, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the neglected member of the Trinity. And I guess one of the reasons he's kind of neglected is he doesn't draw attention to himself. You know, he's always spotlighting Jesus, but he works in the saints. And so pneumatology is, is one of the major motifs of the Gospel of John. So when Jesus is introduced by his cousin John the Baptist in John chapter 1, first John points him out and says, that's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world right there, you know. That's him. And then he says a little bit more, and then he says, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay. So there's a lot of terminology in the New Testament about you know, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, uh, being led by the Holy Spirit, all these, kinda, all these different uh, 
references the Holy Spirit. But basically, it's, uh, the idea is this, that Jesus, it says in John chapter 3, received the Spirit without measure. So nobody could, nobody could receive the Spirit. If the Spirit of God is, is God, which He is, you know, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and almost every week we announce that, don't we? I believe in the Holy Spirit. And so all, almost every week we're saying the Apostles' Creed. We believe that God is three in one. We don't understand that. We don't men mentally grasp how that is possible, do we? We just know that it's true, which is an amazing thing that faith knows that's true. That's, that is a great gift, isn't it? So here we know that the Holy Spirit is among us. And, and so we've been created. You remember in the garden when, when God fashioned Adam and then he breathed into him. He, he, he gave his ruach. You know, his breath went right into this, this body that he made, and he became a living being. Man was made to be a reciprocal, to be a receptacle, to be a temple of God's Spirit. That's why we were created, to have that kind of intimate fellowship. When that was forfeited in the fall, God began to prophesy again that that would transpire, and it would come because that, that house that was made filthy by rebellion would be cleansed so that the Spirit of God could once again come in and live not only among His people, but within these people. And so in the New Testament, it speaks of us being a temple of the Holy Spirit corporately, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and individually, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So corporately, we are the temple of God. Well, what's the temple for? For the Spirit of God to dwell in, individually and corporately. And so Christianity is an experiential religion. It's not only intellectual, and not only do we experience our, in our thinking uh, concepts about God, truth about God, propositional realities about God, about His creation, about why He created the world. Not only do we study the Bible as a historical document, as a piece of literature, uh, but we study it as something that's alive and active because the Spirit of God that inspired it breathes it into us now still. Okay? So we, become, we begin to experience God. We, we taste and see that the Lord is good. You know? So... Listen, give me an ear to hear your voice, Father. You know, let, me, let me see. Let the eyes of my heart look upon you, Father. You know, and so we're, we're people that are experiencing the reality of the truth that's written down here. So I, I love the saying by C.H. Spurgeon. I've mentioned it before. But, you know, we're not just people that are reading the Bible and going, that was a great history lesson. I'm glad that happened in Acts. Wasn't that interesting what they did there in the book of jo Joshua? You know? But this thing is living, act this document is living and active, and it gets acted out in us and through us as God inspires us as He continues to breathe into us by the Holy Spirit. And so we're not just, uh, we're not like C.H. Spurgeon says, the Bible is, is like trying to read a sundial by moonlight without the Holy Spirit, you know. But that's what the Bible is without the Holy Spirit. And so God says, here, let me breathe on you. Receive the Holy Spirit. So we, we move into the book of Acts. And what Jesus was in the flesh, the church becomes incarnated, becomes the receptacle, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so when we gather, you know, we experience God, don't we? We experience God. Sometimes the experience is more heightened. Sometimes we're in a bad mood. We got something on the back burner. We're not paying attention. We're not receiving. But that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is not there brooding over His people. He's always here brooding over us and desiring to get more and more access to who we are, to sanctify us fully, which is why His first name is what? Holy, right? 
His first name is Holy. He desires to sanctify us, to capture us fully, to dwell in us more and more completely. And so we keep coming. We keep getting reminded of this. So Jesus was Jesus had the Spirit of God without measure, John chapter 3, verse 34. And he could do that because he was God. But, but none of us are God. You know, we are members of the body of Christ. But the church together, the church universal, could contain the fullness of the Spirit of God. But we're, we're not the... We're not the universal church, are we? We're just a, a manifestation of it. But still, there's this great manifestation that, that God wants to do in and among us, and he does that by the Holy Spirit. So I had this uh, object lesson I used one time. I thought about doing it today, but I, I didn't do it. I thought I got too much stuff already. But I'll just tell you what it was. I had this tray of cups. I had this tray of cups, and, and uh, I had this big pitcher of water. Okay. And on a couple of those cups, I put lids. And the rest of them I left open, and I just poured that water over the top of those cups. And the ones that had lids, what do you think happened? The water couldn't get in there, could it? And it really didn't do any good to kind of assess, well, what is that cup? What's the purpose of that cup? The purpose of that cup is to hold water in it. Just like the purpose of who we are, to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's our purpose, is to be intimate with God by the Holy Spirit because of Jesus, what he accomplished in cleansing us to be a household for God. Or, you know, to assess the nature of water. Well, what is water like? You know, water's supposed to be in the cup, right? And so some cups are open. But we, we have, we tend to have, because of ignorance, or sometimes because of poor theology, or sometimes because of personal experience, we tend to have a, a bad understanding of how God really desires to fill us and to inflate us and to live in us. Transcendent power in earthen vessels. He really wants to do this. He really desires to do this. This is why Jesus died to bring us into fellowship with the Father so that we could have fellowship with Him and the Father in the Holy Spirit. So God wants us to, to be experientially, He wants us to be full of joy. You know, He wants us to be full of joy. He wants us to be full of love. Well, what are those things called? Love and joy and peace and fruit of the Holy Spirit. So when we abide in Jesus, we're going we're gonna to come this time when we look at Jesus as the vine, and that's a great fulfillment, a great thing that he becomes the real vine, because Israel failed to become the vine, but he becomes the real vine. But what's a vine got in it? You know, when I, when I was living in East Texas, over 45 years ago, I was working for a surveyor one summer. And if you've been in East Texas, I mean off the highway, you know, when you're driving down the roads of East Texas, and you look off to the right and the left, what do you see? A jungle. I mean, it's a, it's a literal jungle because I've, I've worked in that place. And it's got vines all over the ground. We, so we're on a survey crew. We've got a guy that's got a machete on the front, dragging the front of the chain. He's got a machete in one hand. And then you got the guy with the instrument at the back. And then you got another guy with a notebook. So you got a three-man crew typically. This is what it used to be, and probably now it's all done from satellite. But So the guy with the machete, he's got the chain, and he's hacking. He's like Indiana Jones, man. He's hacking through these vines, and you'd hack a vine, you know. I mean, some of the vines are pretty big, big old grapevines. Some of them are small. Cat briars, you ever been in those? Man, they'll chew you up. And so you're hacking all these vines, and then you hack a snake or two, you know. <laughs> so you're down here, and you're going through the jungle, so you can clear a target for the guy with the instrument to sight down there when you finally set the rod up. So you set your survey line, your elevations, and you get your corners to turn. So here we are out there doing the surveying, and you hack a big vine, and I mean even the next day or two days later you come, there's still water pouring out of those vines. Some of them are so big, you know. 
So a vine has something that supplies the branches. It's called sap. The Holy Spirit's the sap. He's the life of God in the branches. And if we're abiding in the vine, there's going to be sap in us. And that sap is love and joy and peace and patience, and it's powerful. It's life-giving. It's life-giving what God gives in the Holy Spirit. It's not just an intellectual pursuit. And one of, the, one of the great things about Presbyterianism is John Calvin was a tremendous scholar. And he trained other people behind him. He mentored people to be scholars of the Word of God. And he did it in the Holy Spirit. But it can, it can decline into intellectualism. It can decline into arguing over how many angels can you get on the head of a pen? Well, it depends on if they're dancing or sitting, you know. I mean, so then you have to chase that for a while. Well, the danger is we become, you know, intellectual giants in our hearts are kind of shriveled up. There's no vitality. There's no experience there. On the other hand, I grew up Pentecostal. And you got a pea brain, you know, and you got this big heart of power and compassion. You know, I mean, I'm just using kind of extremities there. You see what I'm saying? God wants a big head that has great thoughts of God that gets down into our heart and causes us to have great passion for God and great compassion for the world. He wants, he wants to be full orb, you know. And so we need the Spirit of God. But we tend to have these lids on us. And some of them are theological. Well, that stuff passed away. You can't expect to do that. You can't expect to see that. You can't expect that to happen. Well, where'd that come from? It didn't come from the Bible. It didn't come anywhere from the Bible. It came from somebody that said, when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. This is the perfect. Well, I, I admit that this is perfect. But we're not perfect. And Jesus has not returned, but the Spirit of God is still poured out on all flesh. And so Jesus wants us to entertain the Spirit. He wants us to be good entertainers. He wants us to make room for the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so Jesus emphasizes this. And before he, you read about the Spirit of God all through the Gospel of John, but it comes down to chapters 14, 15, and 16, and Jesus is, is saying goodbye, you know, to this relationship he's had with the disciples. It's going to be better for them that he goes back to the Father. They don't understand that. It's going to be better because the Spirit of God can come when He goes back. And now Jesus can get inside of them, not just be beside them. Okay? He's going to live inside of His people rather than just be beside them, which was fantastic in and of itself. But this is, a, this is the new covenant that God would reside within us. So as He begins to teach them about that and, and remind them, He said, the Holy Spirit's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I've told you. And even as he even says the Holy Spirit will do that in such a way that they will be able to write down what it was. And so we get people like Paul who, who never met Jesus in the flesh. He may have seen him from afar, maybe going through Jerusalem, but he never met him in the flesh. But he did receive the Holy Spirit. And he began to pen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What we read now is Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and all these different letters, 13 of them all together. And Peter, who was with Jesus, receives this revelation and sees more clearly than he ever saw when Jesus was with him just exactly what it was that Jesus had called them to. And he writes First and Second Peter. And James is likewise. His brother wrote this great letter that we went through last year. And so all of this comes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we become living letters. You know, we are living letters. But Jesus spends his, uh, the, the whole last night, he's with them pretty much, chapters 14 through 16, speaking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit who is to come. And so this is, a, this is something for us to 
to consider and to, to take, take into account in our own lives. Because I was thinking about, uh, well, I wrote down some things here, but, but I wrote some other stuff on here that I didn't put on your, your uh, paper there. One is I think about how Jesus, the night before he's crucified, just before he begins to speak about the Holy Spirit, he's waiting table. Remember that? He's waiting table because nobody else will do it. And uh, I was just thinking about saying, waiter, waiter, can I have a cup of water over here? Jesus said, if you asked your Father for the Holy Spirit, if you seek Him for this, if you knock for the Holy Spirit, He will give you the Holy Spirit. We just have to be receptive. We have to take off the lid. We have to take off the lid. We have to let our mind, in a sanctified way, we have to let it go after what Jesus has given us about the Holy Spirit. We have to let ourselves go to the Holy Spirit because He's not going to give us a snake. If we ask for an egg, our Father in Heaven is going to give us what's good because that's what comes from Him. So if we ask for the Holy Spirit, so this is another way we could say we ask for salvation, we get salvation. Salvation is not just intellectualism. It's about capturing our whole heart and the energies of our life to begin to, this pursuit, this relationship with Jesus that will last and endure into eternity when it's perfected. But so we're asking God for the Holy Spirit. But there's these sins that you see against the Holy Spirit, and I just wanted to briefly look, look at these. They're, they're very similar, but they're not the same. Uh, Jesus says we have to be careful how we speak. We might end up blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which I, I, some of the Pharisees and Sadducees must have gone over that line where they blasphemed, and they were getting very close to it when they called Jesus a son of the devil, and one who did works by the power of Satan. He said this sin can be forgiven, but not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So we don't want to keep the Holy Spirit at arm's length. We don't want to not receive his ministry of truth into our lives because if we receive his conviction, his convicting, there is no other access to Jesus except by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't want to do that. And if we've ever been concerned that we've done that, then we're, we're in good shape, theologians say, and I, I agree with that. If we're concerned maybe that we've stepped too far away from God, you know, to ever be recaptured, to ever have hope again, to ever have joy again, then it's certain that we haven't gone beyond that because there's still a grieving, there's still a sorrow in our heart. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so we're still safe. We're still in a good place. But if we go beyond that to the book of Acts, you'll remember the, the story when the church is first getting formed that there's this couple, uh, you may have met them before, Ananias and Sapphira. And they pretended to be something they weren't. And they tried to lie to God, which is futile to try to lie to God. But they didn't. They weren't understanding what was going on. The Bible doesn't say if they're really believers or not, but, but God was not going to have that in his household when he's just getting the foundations laid for this church that's going to be a witness to the world. And so when they lie about who they are and what they've devoted to the purposes of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, Peter calls them to account and the Holy Spirit takes them out. And they're taken out of the church, you know, feet first. And so we can't lie to the Holy Spirit. We can't pretend to be something we're not and expect to entertain His presence. He's not going to. He's not going to dwell among hypocrites. He's not going to to manifest the power of God in a hypocritical a hypocritical environment. And so we just have to be honest with God. We don't. We don't have to hide from God. We can't hide from God anyway. And we and we just need to be honest with God, which is a great thing in prayer to be honest with God. And then uh, when Stephen's preaching, just before they kill him, he talks to the to the, the religious leaders that are uh, trying to extinguish the testimony of Jesus in Acts chapter 7. And he says, oh, you're a stiff-necked people. You're always resisting the Spirit of God. And sure enough, they were. And so they stoned Stephen. 
We don't want to be resisting the Holy Spirit. We want to be supple. We want to be open to Him. We want to allow Him to have His way in us. When He convicts us, we want to say, yes, I I need to respond to that. I need to change that and begin to work with Him, putting to death the deed so that the Holy Spirit has more room to live in us. And, And He's glad to do that. He's glad to help us put to death the deeds of the flesh. But not if we resist him, not if we, he convicts us time and again, time and again. We're, we're playing on dangerous ground. God's serious about dealing with sin in our lives. He, he's he's going to extinguish it. It's not going to be present in heaven. He wants to deal with it now. He wants, to, he wants to get us into that mode of meekness and yieldingness to him now. So that in, in heaven we go, wow, now I'm meek. This is the blessing that God really called me to. And so we can't get that by, by resisting God. We have to, to give up to him. And there's this, this sin of uh, grieving the Holy Spirit that Paul talks about in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And it, and it really has to do with continuing in sin and especially with the way that we speak. Yesterday on this, this Kairos team, we were taking like, we had five minutes apiece. Some of these guys are more preachers than I am. They, you give them five minutes, they'll take 15. But, but at any rate, they, so we're supposed to share five minutes of what fruit do we see in our lives right now that God's giving us, you know, and and where do we still struggle? And so when I first got the sheet of paper, I thought, fruit in my life, okay. And then I saw, where do I still struggle? Boy, God just hammered me the other day. I've been really impatient with my wife, really sharp, you know, basically for 46 years. But I mean, you know, the last few months, for some reason, I've just been impatient, really bad, you know, and it manifests itself in driving and traffic and everything. And God said, that comes out of arrogance. That impatience comes from arrogance. Oh, God. You're going to have to help me. I mean, arrogant is who I am. I mean, that's who I am. I think I'm right. Maybe 98% of the time. No, you know what I mean? I think I'm right. God didn't call me to be right. He called me to be His Son. To be an emissary. To be one that's filled with with the fruit of the Spirit. And love is patient and kind. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Yeah. And so I'm just caught, I'm caught red-handed. I'm caught red-handed. God, I can't, even, I can't even begin to deal with this. It's so big. But Jesus has dealt with it. He's dealt with it. And God wants me to receive the fruit of the Spirit in place of that arrogance, in place of that pride, in place of that need of, of being the one that's correct. So, I just let you know that, so that's embarrassing, really. But Anyway, so the Holy Spirit, He doesn't want us to grieve, because here's an interesting thing, the Holy Spirit is the one who bears witness with us that we are the sons and the daughters of God. That's, that's part of His job description. And if we grieve Him... We're muting His voice. If we grieve the Holy Spirit by sinning, by, with our tongues especially, Paul says, if we grieve Him, we're muting His testimony. Man, that's terrible. That's terrible for our confidence in God's promises. And then we have to just kind of play like, well, this all belongs to me. Well, I'm not hearing it. It's not, it's not the drumbeat of my life. If I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, don't do that. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Then he says in 1 Thessalonians that we can quench the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's a fire. 
He wants to intends to burn brightly in us. He tends to burn away the dross and to light up our lives so that we're a city set on a hill. And if we quench him, which often happens because of the poor theology lots of times or ignorance, we just, no, nah, I'm not going to receive that. My pastor never said that. You couldn't do that. My pastor, it doesn't matter what your pastor said. It matters what the Bible says. That's what matters, right? It matters what the Holy Spirit says in the Bible. It doesn't matter what that theological strain is taught. It matters what does the Bible say about God's purposes for us. And it definitely says we're to be intimate. We're a bride to Him. And I tell you, a bride that belongs to a loving husband hears that she's loved, sees that she's appreciated. You know? And so we don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. We want to that doesn't mean we swallow everything that comes down the pike. You know, if you're going to a good restaurant and you're having some kind of fish, maybe red snapper, and it's not filleted, and it's dark in there, you know, you have to be careful where you'll eat the bones, right? We have to be careful. We have to, God wants us to be discerning. He doesn't want to be stupid, you know, or just to, just to, you know, say, I'll swallow anything, come down. Sounds like, well, that sounds exciting. It must be the Holy Spirit. No, that's not what Paul's saying. He says, you examine everything. You hold fast, though. Don't you despise prophecy or the works of the Holy Spirit. Don't do that. Don't swallow everything, but don't despise it just because it feels uncomfortable. Because being with Jesus sometimes is really uncomfortable. Really uncomfortable. But we know He has our good at hand, don't we? Because He died for us. So we know He's out for our good. So, we don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. Then you come to this one and... Terrible. They're all, all of these are terrible, but Hebrews chapter 10 talks about to outrage the Spirit of grace. Our God is a consuming fire. He's out to demolish sin. He's out to burn it away. He's out to purify His people. And if we don't let go of those things that are contrary to His nature, was it Corey Ten Boom? Denise has this quote somewhere in her house. I'll read it every once in a while, hanging up. Toward Corey Ten Boom said, uh, don't hold on so tight to things. Because if you have to let go of them, it's going to hurt when God rips them out of your hands. You know? Don't outrage the Spirit of grace. Don't resist the purposes of God. Realize that He disciplines everyone that He receives. Because He loves it. And He wants to share Himself more fully and His holiness completely. And so we want to be a people that are open to the Holy Spirit. Not gullible. We're not a gullible people. You know? We don't want to go handle snakes. Oh, maybe you do. I don't. You know, I don't want to be gullible. But man, I want the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms me and makes me a good witness, makes me a, a good testimony of who Jesus is and of what He wants. And I can't do that on my own. That's why Jesus said, Abide in me, and I'll abide in you. You know, If my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and it shall be done for you. And the Holy Spirit is that sap that flows out of the vine into us, the branches. And it's what keeps us alive and vital. Makes us taste good, you know. Makes us smell like Jesus. Transforms us until we're in His image. So let's pray together and we'll, we'll go on today. Father, we want to thank You for the, the goodness and the grace and the patience and the mercy that we have found in Your Son. And in the way that You've made that a reality in our lives to the extent that we allow You. Over and over, God, You, you are so patient. You keep coming to us. Lord, week by week, you chisel away at us. And you do it all out of love, God. 
You do it because you desire us. You jealously long for us to love you the way that you love us. And you don't give up. We thank you that you're just tenacious, God, in that love. God, we don't want to be against you. We want to be with you and for you and indwelt by you. So here we are, Father God. Here we are. We just present ourselves to you. Just the way we are right here, right now, God. All the things that bug us, all the things that bug the people around us, about us, all the things that disappoint you in us, God, still you love us. Still you bear with us. Still you pour your spirit out upon us, God. Help us to be attentive to his voice. It's still and small. It's not in the breaking of the rocks or the hurricane of wind or the great fire on the mountainside. It's, it's in the still, small voice, Father, as we listen. And we thank you for your word that, that it does speak to us, that it isn't just some words or ink on a page that sounds good, that's a great literature, some genre that uh, nobody else has been able to, to replicate, but it's your voice, Father, by your Spirit. So come and breathe in us freshly, God. Help us. Help us, Lord, uh, just stretch us out. Let us be new wineskins that receive this new covenant promise because this Spirit is for us and for all who call upon your name, to our children, to the third, the fourth, to every generation. God, this great promise of being sealed and kept, testified to by your Spirit in us. And God, testify to the world around us, we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great afternoon.